From Sin Media in Melbourne, you're listening to Great Minds Don't Think Alike, a podcast all about neurodiversity. Hello and welcome to Great Minds Don't Think Alike for the election day. Um, yes, election day. Yeah, by the time this, this podcast goes up, we will have a new parliament. That Possibly. Is, yeah, that, that is quite an exciting well, it won't thought. be the same. <laughs> yeah, it won't be the same, but... And that and, yeah, it technically will have, another, it will have a different number, so yes. Yes, but... will be a new parliament. Yeah, I guess so. It might still be the same party, though, but enough about that. Yeah. Yes, this isn't actually a political episode. No, um, no, this no. Is, just happens to coincide with, yes, we're not getting political now. We'll, we'll be talking about um, overload of ambitions, which is the topic that Daniel brought to the fore, and I believe he has quite a bit of personal experience with that, unfortunately. Mm. Um, we'll also be talking uh, film stereotypes, with related to neurodiversity, specifically the fact that they tend to use those, say, at the start of a rom-com to show that the character, you know, um, needs to get their life together. Uh, so all of a sudden, oh, no, you, you seem a bit dyspraxic today. You're okay. You seem a bit autistic today. Just mm. hodgepodge of all the things. <laughs> and later on, we'll also be talking about um, espionage and neurodiversity, about British Central Intelligence apparently hiring some 120. Yes, some uh, hiring some 120 uh, neurodiverse spies. Apparently, it's very conducive to the world of espionage. Uh, at, at least we said before the real espionage, not exactly like the James Bond type, mm. um, or, or although, any of those the, other films. Yeah, although the James Bond still, some of the James Bond the spying still happens. Yeah, some. But I think we can all agree that, yeah, it's like some realistic elements mixed in there, but a lot of, you know, glamorization and stuff like that. So sorry to any James Bond fans. We won't really be talking about, yeah, about pretty girls and explosions and um, uh, an undefined set of, you know, skills like what, being able to drive any vehicle he sits in or anything like that. Um, And being able to escape near-death situations that would be impossible to escape in real life. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, so this is oh, this is also Callan's last episode before I forget. Hi. Wow. (laughs) Don't you mean bye? Yes. Oh, yes, that too. (laughs) So yeah, I I turned twenty six the day after the election. So you know, Sin decides to cut you off. Then Mm. cut you into the wide world. You're no longer called a young person. God. Yeah, <laughs> kind, of, kind of scary the thought of that, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, just like that. You're not a young person anymore. <laughs> you don't have any power. Yeah, mm. I know. At 11.59pm, you are a young person, but as soon as that clock sticks over to midnight, you've suddenly grown up. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's amazing how magical need, that happens. I need an adult. I am an adult. No! <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you've been an adult for years, but now all of a sudden you're not a young adult anymore. You're not a youth. Yeah. <laughs> you're um, now a senior citizen. <laughs> yes. You just wasted on the young. See, I'm getting, I'm getting there. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Anyway, and don't remember to to keep up to date with uh, all of the news that we see is interesting and all of the happenings around neurodiversity and great minds don't think alike. You can um, like our Facebook page if you just search great minds don't think alike. It'll come up. It's on a very f- frequently searched thing, yep. especially on Facebook. Also, uh, we do have um, a WordPress blog uh, that you feel free to contribute to if, you, if you'd like to make any submissions or pitch anything to us or just actually ask us any questions to get in touch privately email address is gmdta.media at gmail.com have i missed anything you said we had a twitter and we have a facebook and we have wordpress mm. so i think that's we all do. the things yeah exactly okay well, all right see you later on the show you're with cal and daniel and christian Welcome. 
The first topic of the day, spoken by me, Daniel, and Callan, and Christian. Hello. <laughs> will be ambition overload. I suggested this topic. I don't think it's a topic that gets discussed very often, but I think it relates to neurodiversity very well. And I don't think it's one that people speak up about a lot, and that is ambition overload. So basically what I'm talking about is typically autism spectrum disorders are characterised by narrow and intense interests, and the person can gain encyclopedic knowledge of that interest very in a very short space of time. But the problem is, though, what if that person's interest keeps changing, but at the same time they don't want to give up the previous interest? So they don't want to give the other one up. They want to keep it up, but they want to combine it with the other interest, and eventually they start having a bit of an identity crisis because they, they want to keep up all these interests at the same time. They want to gain mastery over them. They want to gain knowledge over them, but they... But so, so much so that, and there are so many things they want to pursue, but they can't pursue them all at once. Like one day you might you might want to become a fluent speaker of a language, and the next day, no, you decide I want I want to gain mastery over an instrument. Or the the next day I want to I want to be able to write poetry. I want to be able to write songs. Or the next day I, w- I want to be I want to be a radio person. And the person just it starts to stress them out because they have so many things they want to pursue, but they can't pursue them all at once. And part of the problem is that society tends to reward or praise multi-talented people, but the problem is that's not very conducive for focus as to what the person wants to do. And I think a lot of people feel they need to rush, rush, rush constantly, and that success in a certain area should come quick, whereas success doesn't always come quick. In fact, it often doesn't. It takes time. Have any of you two experienced anything like this? Well... When I read the article you posted, it, it screamed to me sort of just like societal expectation. For me, it was very much well, specifically relating to autism, especially when sort of like the kid gets diagnosed, their parents are just like, you can do whatever you want. I'm like, no, no, you, no, I can't. I need to focus on one thing at a time. Or it's, we don't expect you to do anything. You can please just exist. As it sort of like relates to sort of like ambition overload, you, you are right. Rushing things is antithetical to mastery. Mm. What I mean by that is, of course, that if you don't sit down and actually master the damn thing, you cannot rush a mastery inside anything. Yeah, exactly. And But also, if people know you're interested in something, I often feel, I don't know if you two feel, if someone finds out I'm interested in something, I want to demonstrate some kind of mastery over it to almost justify having that interest. I know it sounds ridiculous and kind of silly and irrational, but... But the fact is, it does actually manifest on my mind. Oh yeah. no, that's no. I, I feel like that's a reaction people actually have. So you know, say if mm. you're if you say you're interested in medieval history, let's say, you know, someone will, um, you know, they might like start like yeah. either either quizzing I on it or like I am interested in medieval history. Why do you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. you should say that. <laughs> oh, you know, like say, oh, okay, right. So you um, you like you know all of this stuff, or like you know start quizzing about, like asking for a demonstration, like mm. oh, okay, so you like singing? Do you want to like what what do you sing? Do you want to sing something for us right now? What's the highest note you can reach? What's the lowest note you can reach? It's like people kind of yeah, I, I know. If you have, especially if you say you have a big interest in it and like you spend a lot of time doing this, people kind of. Almost mm. want to see results, I guess, as as well. And yeah, it is it is partly a, a justification thing. Just to make it clear, the article we're referring to that the three of us have read is um, from neverwhatyouthink.com. It's called "What Happens When You're Too Ambitious." It's a pretty brief, interesting read. Very brief, but very to the point, and it sums it up perfectly. 
I have to say. And I will mention about that, I was kind of quoting them when I said rush three times. Society expects you to rush, rush, rush. That was actually a direct quote. One thing I, I first noticed this actually was at the end of high school, when I told some of my peers I wasn't going to do the exams in year 12, I was going to do year 12 without the exams. And people were then asking, but you won't get into uni that way. Well, no, not immediately. I, I thought, well, I don't really intend on going to uni anyway. I, but, you know, I could do a TAFE course for two years and then join join uni as a mature age student. And they said, yeah, but do you really want to waste two years of your life before you can go to uni? It's like, but I'm not wasting anything. I'm spending it studying and building up to something. It's like, why? In two years, we've got... We've yeah, got you've, you've got a clear set of goals, which I don't think is too ambitious. Too ambitious is uh, sort of like this... This was said in the article. It's sort of like this expectation, especially inside modern society, that you have to be as successful as your peers. As your peers, exactly. And But you see, here's the thing. Comparing yourself to others in your own mind is a losing game. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And you have what's the Facebook syndrome where you only see the good parts of people's lives. You don't see the manic depression that somebody's going through. You yeah. only just see them with a wine glass on the beach. Yes, you can you don't see them battling, oh, it's called alcoholism. <laughs> yeah, essentially, like, you, you're comparing your behind-the-scenes to their success reel. And, I mean, like, you, you know, you get jealous of people all the time. If, some, if someone, like, you have an interest in languages and you're studying one, but you meet someone who speaks, like, four and they're fairly proficient, you might feel jealous of them, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're always happy. Because, like, if you do actually push yourself to achieve what they have achieved, it might not be what you expect. You might feel, okay, I've achieved it. What of it? It certainly rings to sort of this postmodern concept of hyperreality. Mm. With social media, you can construct your own hyperreality. Usually, before social media came along, the construction of hyperreality only existed to the very rich and the very famous, sort of like the princess and the Michael Jacksons of the world, where they could exist inside their own constructed reality divorced from the actual Mm. yeah that's an interesting thing you're talking about there something else that actually does come to mind about this though like basically i felt in high school sometimes i couldn't actually be proud of myself sometimes like if ever i tried to pat myself on the back about something openly like say i was expressing how proud i was of my singing voice Someone might then try to bring me down by saying, oh, yeah, you can sing well. Well, this person can sing and accompany themselves on an instrument at the same time. Can you do that? It's like, oh, jeez, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm not an all-rounder. And is that person not like, you know, sometimes I would feel like because I have so many interests and I couldn't, I tried to focus on so many things at once, like I felt like less of a musician than someone else. I felt like less of a trivia person than someone else because... I tried to get the one up over them by having multiple areas, whereas they might only have one, and think that that makes me a fuller person. But that's just silly. That's really irrational, Mm. if you know what I mean. Yeah, I I completely understand what you mean. Inside my profession, which is politics, there's always sort of like an attack vector you can have on your opponent's character, which will actually deflate them. Mm. Well, politics Um, is kind of a game, so that's... Yeah, yeah. it is is absolutely a game. you, You become fairly accustomed to the fact that everyone has has a particular flaw that mm. inside politics whether you exploit it or not defines what kind of politician you are but yeah politics is a game but not everything is a game but that is just is what people expect it to be that's but like we people, turn it we turn yeah. it into a game like music well, yeah. shouldn't be a game music mm. is about providing organized sound that people find pleasant to listen to I, 
I think what we mean by sort of game, it's a game of comparisons. Yes. Like, yeah, for that's... example, if I were to compare myself to the Emperor Justinian, the great Byzantium, when he and I were the same age, he was a beggar. But mm. the problem is, about six years from now, he's going to be the Roman Emperor. Exactly. Which is, so, you know... Mm. Comparisons don't work, and I know exactly how they don't work. Yeah, and plus you're on your own path. Yeah. There's the other thing. Comparing yourself to others is also silly because no one's better at being you than you. You're on your own path. And, like, sometimes I feel if if someone's success inspires me to become more successful, I feel like, hang on, why am I following in their footsteps? Why aren't I being me? Because, like, mm. yeah, if that example in high school was, like, okay, so I can sing, but I can't accompany myself on an instrument, they can, therefore I should learn to accompany myself on an instrument like them, but why am I trying to be them? Yeah, but mm. that also rings to the sort of, mm. like, the heart mm. of the issue. Mm. What, when you become sort of, like, too ambitious, it's a mm. side consequence of the entirety of society becoming too narcissistic. Yes. If you're saying, I need to follow my own path... That is sort of like a narcissistic, yes. uh, a narcissistic surrendering of just I. You know what? My path is superior for me. Screw everyone else, which is not entirely incorrect, but it's not entirely correct at the same time. Well, perhaps not, but it's better than trying to one up everyone by trying to be better at everything than them. Mm. Yeah, because as I said, comparison is a losing game. And it sucks the joy out of everything. But also, what about the topic of knowing what you want to pursue and when? Do I want to be a librarian? Do I want to be a voice actor? Do I want to be this? Like, I can't even decide. Well, I feel like that's a very old-fashioned thing of having to decide. That's obviously, you know, people of a certain generation. So, you know, maybe our parents or older people will will obviously ask you that. You know, okay, you have all these interests, but what's the one thing you're going to pick when you're 18 that you're going to follow for the rest of your life until you retire? Because that's the the old model of how careers worked. Yeah. Um, It sort of comes with the wisdom of age, doesn't it? Because all Mm. the old people are just like, yeah, just choose one thing. Don't worry about the other stuff. Mm. I don't know about that. I feel like a bit because, you know, there's choosing one thing in terms of, like trusting yourself but then there's also the you have to lock yourself into you know a career like a career oh, is no. that yeah this sort of like the, the way I explain it is that the old people know they don't have to rule the world mm. it's sort of like they know the borders of their own square and they know mm. they had to make the decision at some point mm. yeah but it doesn't have to be like a permanent life decision that's the thing exactly because they, what is the average figure now for like a the number of jobs slash careers the person will maybe not careers but you know professions someone will have yeah six so yeah I so, think it should be less but it's six so I know obviously if you choose to really pursue something and work in a particular area it's still don't get me wrong it's still a big choice but I feel like it's determining what let's say maybe five or so years at the very least like it's not doesn't necessarily have to be a lifetime mm. choice that you're actually laying down. Yeah. I can't imagine myself being focused on the one thing for even three years, really. Because, yes, I mean, I've had some interests that have lasted, like, almost a decade, or more than a decade, but my focus on them fluctuates. Like, my big focus of interest when I was in high school was, at first it was geography, then it was musical theatre. Nowadays, it tends to be more Celtic music and Gaelic culture, But right after high school, it was movie reviews. And I'm still interested in movie reviews and always will be, but it's not my main focus anymore. It might be again one day, but it isn't now. Well, yeah, Yeah. that's sort of just how your tastes evolve over time. Exactly. At least for me, my tastes have not evolved. 
for example, my music taste is I like metal. Yes, exactly. And it hasn't changed in 10 years. My ambitions haven't changed in a decade either. So, again, this is probably mm. sort of the difference between me and you, Dan, is that yeah. I basically said, I want to do this, I will pursue this at whatever cost to myself. Yes, whereas with me, it just seems to be... I'll pursue this, but eventually I want to do other things. Or if my focus of interest change, I'll pursue something else, but I'll still keep this on the side because, mm. yeah, I don't want to abandon it. Yeah. And, of course, people might have known me when I was completely obsessed with one thing and they see me again and they still think I'm completely obsessed and I'm kind of afraid to disappoint them saying my focus of interest has changed, unfortunately. But at the same time, I don't want to admit that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, there's almost like the spectrum of... Because, yeah, some people do actually have, like, a particular you know, interest that you might... The one that you can track from, like, when they were little, you know, the classic of, like, oh, I've been acting since I was three. Mm. Oh, that was when I was first... Uh, have been on the stage. But, yeah, some people's, more like you, Dan, do definitely change. And I think, mm. yeah, the, the problem is that it may be also some of this is specific to being neurodiverse. This, like, okay, so you're you're different, but that's okay because you can channel all that difference into... What are you channeling your differences into, Daniel? What's the thing that you've chosen to put yourself into? What's your thing? Everyone who's neurodiverse has to have their thing. Callum uh, has politics. Yeah. Talks about politics all the time. That's yours. That's good. You're allowed to be different. You yeah. have your thing. Specifically organizational structures. You're really good at that. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Movies, I'd... languages, historical weaponry. Um, what else? Oh, okay, uh, so you're an expert you? in all of those areas. Yeah, I know. They expect this. Yeah, this. Yes, I'm not an expert in any of them. I have quite a bit of knowledge of, of all those areas, but definitely not mastery. Mm. Just before we wrap this up, yeah. I, I did want to add, I feel like part of this might be a little bit of, at least for a neurodiverse person, almost, well, obviously it's learned by the society around you, but learned in a different way because I have heard, and I kind of, I at least relate to this myself, that um, people on the autism spectrum tend to be very internally motivated, at least naturally. I at least can relate to this. It's something I've heard that, yeah, well, yeah the internal motivation is stronger than... I think I've, yeah. I've heard the same thing. It's mm. a, they have no problem with motivation, they, mm. but they have a problem with discipline. Yes. <laughs> discipline yeah. is what happens when all your motivation shrinks away. Mm. Yeah, I don't have the discipline or the focus. Mm. That's what I like at the moment, which I'm trying to learn, mm. and it'll take time. I shouldn't expect quick success like the article suggests. I need to keep <laughs> reminding myself of that. Yeah. But... You know, my confidence in that goes in and out. It's really annoying. Yeah. But more than that, I feel like the natural inclination is socially just to not care sometimes. So it's almost oh, no, that like, was, yeah. That was definitely it like yeah. 10 years ago, but not yeah. now. Now mm. you have to do everything. You have yes. to be everything to everyone. No, well, no, yeah. no, I mean, the natural inclination as a person on the spectrum is sort of to not care about certain bits of reputation or certainly what strangers think or mm. um, or those things that seem to be very important to a lot of other people. Yeah. Um, I almost felt like I had to be sort of taught to care about certain, like, either social graces or, you know, what other people around were thinking of me. So sometimes you can kind of learn something too much like to the point of a bit you know a bit like eye contact if you go from like not looking at anyone at all to full-on staring at them yeah it's sort of that okay suddenly you're letting all of this into like a hyper degree maybe more than the people around you um because you're always taught in my case it was you're on this french study tour and you want to go to this monument but you're the only person who wants to go and you'd be going by yourself but you have to care about that because 
as a human being, you know, you have to feel like you're missing something if you don't have your crowd around you who's going, oh, geez, you know, that's, this is um, like a 100-meter structure. That's, that's yeah, big. Your interests yeah. do not require validation by others. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. And then you're told, oh, no, you're supposed to need validation. Oh, okay. And then you need heaps of validation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah I, I believe the conclusionary statement to this entire discussion is temper your expectations. Yes. And don't worry too much about what other people think. Mm. And don't rush. Yes. Mm. yes. Don't, rush. don't rush. Success does not come quick. No. You can juggle a few things, but if it's in the sense of like, you know, one is something you're trying to master, maybe like a something you're doing on the side and something just kind of like a casual hobby or interest that you don't necessarily have to be a master of. Yes, they don't all have to be your front passion. No, no. And indeed, you, and you your passion really... can change too. And you can't. You don't have to be the best at something to feel like you should be doing it. Exactly. Anyway, thank you. This has been Life Lessons with Christian. <laughs> and Cal. <laughs> and Daniel. And we'll see you later on in the show. Hello, it's me again, Christian. And, and me again, Cal. And Daniel. And uh, now um, we're going to have a little bit of a discussion about neurodiversity stereotypes in films, but um, more specifically how they are used as, and this can get, we'll have quite an interesting discussion about this, they're basically used as a sign of either weakness or like deficiency in a character or like a character not being themselves. It's like the only kind of way that, you know, a sneaky bit of representation, dare I say it, sometimes, you know, sneaks its way into the mainstream media is that, you know, like uh, at the start of a rom-com, when characters, like, hapless at all, you know, having all these dates and they're hopeless at dating or, like, you know, they've really got to pull themselves together is when they start, like, eating messily or, like, blubbering and stuttering. Yeah. Now, Christian, I'm going to ask you to be specific because... Like inside these movies, and I know yes. the ones that you're talking about, yes. it is not explicitly stated that this person has autism or ADHD or whatever. Oh, what makes no. you? A, what evidence do you have to supply to the court I to d- say that these people are you, these, this sneaky neurodiversity you're you're referring to? I don't think these characters are actually like. I, I don't think that's what the scriptwriters have on their minds. Mm. It's more just you know the traits isolated. Um, oh, okay. So, you know, so basically, like, you know, people see all these films and, you know, they get conditioned to think, oh, okay, so someone eating messily means that they're a mess. Someone stuttering a lot means, oh, poor guy, he just needs to find the right girl or, I don't know, you know needs to pull themselves together. You, you know, you need to be healed by a third act finale conclusion. Yeah. So when they see actually these people in real life, they, so they see, I don't know, say uh, a dyspraxic person like me who's very clumsy, that's what they immediately sort of go to, like... Oh, okay, wow. This guy doesn't look like he really has very much together. Um, Should we give him a lot of responsibility? Probably not. Um, (laughs) The the issue here, of course, is that, Christian, like, dyspraxia, like, Mm. if a person is messy, they're obviously a mess. If a person is clumsy, they're obviously clumsy. Yeah. But the problem is they don't realize that this is through no fault of your own. Yeah. Um, And also that it's, it's unrelated to things like... All right, we'll say something that's like an intellectual sort of job or like something that's totally unrelated to fine motor skills and um, the ability to eat cleanly. People will kind of assume that like your lack of competence in those areas kind of transfers across. This this whole like, because I know, you know, film relies on all of this showing, not telling. So basically it's relying on this whole, 
you know, taking the exterior and assuming that kind of translates across into the interior. Mm. Yes. Um, doesn't always work in real life. Sometimes it does, but it kind of reinforces that. Well, one example I'm thinking of that comes to mind is that, well, how would you describe George McFly's behaviour in the first Back to the Future film before he decks Biff? Yeah, yeah exactly. I know. I mean, you know, on, on the one hand, obviously, he doesn't stick up for himself. Um, yeah. So that speaks to his actual personality flaw. But, yeah, his sort of bent-over posture, which some people just mm. have, okay? They yeah, don't have the best he, control of their spinal cord. And, and he sometimes mutters to himself. He yeah. moves oddly. He, and when he's at the dance before he confronts Biff, he's kind of dancing oddly, like, mm. like he's very self-conscious. So it's like some people just are, are like that. That's not mm. to say they can't grow and develop, mm. but it doesn't necessarily mean that something's wrong wrong with them per se. Well, it doesn't necessarily mean it's just a confidence problem. Well, it might not be mm. per se. Like, you know, he's showing neurodiverse traits and then all of a sudden he decks the bully and now all of a sudden he's not neurodiverse. Suddenly he's normal. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Which I'm glad they... It's interesting because that basically kind of is the moral of the film. Like, you know, you punch someone and then you're a hero. Um, yeah. Or, you know, you'd like, you don't run away from a fight. So no, I, well, yeah. I, I would argue that the entire point of the movie is that the fact that he, as soon as somebody calls Marty a chicken, he has to fight. That's his instinctive response, that's and it gets the, him into more yeah, that, trouble than it's worth. That's the point of the sequels. Yeah, yeah, the two um, sequels, not the first movie. Okay, yeah. that's yeah. the first movie. Yeah, yeah we're, we're focusing on the first one because, yeah, George McFly he does show he does show uh, neurodiverse traits in just his posture, his speaking manner, that like he shudders when he talks a lot. Mm. And he does creative writing, but he doesn't show it to anyone. Like, he has a very keen... And it kind of <laughs> goes back to what we were talking about before. He has a very keen interest in science fiction. Yes, now all of a sudden he then... And, but, of course, his interest in science fiction doesn't change. But uh, he decks Biff, and now all of a sudden he's ready to show his stories to other people. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, oh, I'm, well. We're not saying it's a bad film, or, if anything. Not at all. But, yeah, it's relevant to mm. this topic. Well, I feel like even more appropriately, think like this is the same decade as well. A fish called Wanda. Um, I forget, no, I isn't it? Oh, okay. Um, yes, I think I know who you're going to talk about. Yeah. Um, what's the name of the character with the stutter? Ken. Ken. That's right. So there's a character who has a stutter. That's pretty much all you really know. Oh, and th- and that and he has a fish called Wanda. Oh, he's um, an animal lover, a passionate yeah. animal lover. Yeah. Exactly. But he's kind of contrasted with uh, this character that Kevin Klein plays, who's sort of yeah, very tough and very, very mean and um, speaks very clearly and very confidently and very loudly. And he's an idiot. Yes. Um, but, yeah, Ken, stutter guy, that's pretty much all he is. You don't really find anything else out about him um, other than the study, and that's Basically, he's, he's kind of a one-joke character. Like, you're supposed to keep laughing at the fact that he has a stutter to the point where, like, there's actually a scene. It's quite a famous scene, but I find it very uncomfortable to watch. It's supposed to be hilarious, but it's where, like, he's tied up and um, he's an animal lover, like I said. And Kevin Klein character is saying, okay, um, you know, I vaguely remember that she says, okay, say this without stuttering. And if you stutter, I'm going to eat one of your fish. Um, and if you don't stutter, I'm not. People say, oh, gosh, it's hilarious that this guy has a stutter and he stutters because he has a stutter. That's never a scene I found funny. I just found it very uncomfortable to watch. Okay. Yeah. I, I, it, well, the problem mm. is if you, try to, if you try to say that it was meant to be funny or it was meant to be shocking, mm. you're sort of imposing an intentional fallacy upon the scene. 
Well, no, it's not an intentional fallacy. It's I'm talking more about like the public reaction. Like, yeah, it's, most it's, people, it's often cited as like one of the, the um, funniest scenes of the film in one of what's meant to be one of the funniest films of all time. Yeah, and it is like you know it is a comedy, so it's being surrounded by all this funny stuff. So you know, if well, they're going to, yeah. I haven't seen the film, so I'm yeah. just like, aren't you committing an intentional fallacy? Is, is that supposed to be like, is well, it supposed to be nihilistic humor? I don't know about nihilistic humor, but mm. if you're going to spend that amount of time showing something in the comedy, it's supposed to be funny. I think we can assume. So yeah, yeah you're supposed to laugh at the fact that this guy has a stutter, and his stutter makes him stutter, and stuttering is funny. Yes, even though mm. it's a very debilitating condition for some people. Yeah, and, and it certainly doesn't speak to your worth as a person or, you know, your strength of character or intelligence no. um, or even your ability to – okay, well, I was about to say ability to stick up for yourself if you can't speak. But you know what I mean, like your assertiveness, not hmm. necessarily. Well, I was also going to bring up the scene at the end where he runs Kevin Klein's character over with a steamroller into wet cement so he doesn't kill him, and then all of a sudden he's not stuttering. Like he runs him over with a steamroller and he says, I've lost my stutter. Ah, and he's celebrating, and, and he even says a tongue twister without stumbling. And I was thinking, wait, hang on, okay, so he just ran his enemy over with a steamroller. Now all of a sudden he's not a stutterer. Yeah, that's... I'm, I mean, it's it's tricky because, like, there's a difference, obviously, between, like, having a stutter and, you know, a, a stutter is something that often is, is a result of, like, a specific trauma, and, you know, it can be something you can have therapy to work through as, say, a, like a certain unusual way of speaking mm. so you know maybe think of like used to be involved with great minds didn't think alike from the beginning daniel giles you know like someone yeah. um oh i didn't think he had a stutter i think it was monotone oh yeah exactly so very, not, mon- very not monotonous st- and very slow speaking yeah another stutter yeah. but still like unusual speech well yeah as yeah. i said it comes back to the problem of the imposition of responsibility it's you have this stutter so you must this must be your fault mm. Mm. which you know i can only accept that if the person a wanted to fix it. B went to seek help, and C gave up halfway through. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, if someone's not doing anything to try and heal, but but yeah, that's that's the difference obviously between a stutter as well and um, unusual speech because unusual speech is often just kind of a fact with you for life. A bit like yeah, going back to the spraxy thing as well. I suppose the unusual way of moving or whatever. All of these neurodiverse kind of exterior ways, I guess, of, like, acting like your demeanor. Mm. If you see it on screen, it's usually, yeah, either going to be, like, the hero when they're at their hapless early stage of the movie mm. or the villain all the way through. Mm. And, and, and There is an example that I have, and it's a TV series rather than that. And it, it's inherently politically incorrect because it wants to be. Yeah. South Park has, like, three neurodiverse characters in it. It has... Mm. <laughs> and it has three disabled people as... <laughs> and they all get into all kinds of adventures because they're disabled or because they're neurodiverse. Mm. I mean, you you can also argue Cartman's a little a little neurodiverse inside the head by the fact that his rationalisation for doing any any sort of thing is because uh, his parents and an inherent narcissist who gives him whatever the hell he wants. That coupled with you know autism is a lethal combination. Mm. And for me, it presents something closer to reality than sort of any of the other movies that you were talking about. This sort of like very played up, sort of just... The moral of this story is that if somebody is using force to try and keep you in line, if you show force back, they might might back off and back in the future. Or inside a fish called Wanda, it's just like, oh yeah, this is just a surface problem, don't worry about it, we're going to roll you over with a steamroller and you'll be fine. <laughs> um, 
with South Park, it is incredibly fanciful, but it does sort of ring true to this reality that A, neurodiverse people and even disabled people can be terrible people as well, and B, some of these people, especially um, Jimmy, doesn't want it fixed. He's accepted the fact that his legs don't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, inside the Bloods versus the Crips episode, where Timmy gets involved in a gang because he misinterprets you know, the titles of the gangs are. And he's like, oh, yeah, these must be, the Bloods must be, you know, people who are crippled from birth, and the Crips mm. must be people who got crippled in accidents. And suddenly mm. they hate each other for no goddamn reason because mm. of resentment. Because, you know, one of them was just like, hey, my, my legs used to work and now I resent the world. And the yeah. other one was just, the philosophy of the bloods is, my legs haven't worked ever and I've accepted this. Mm. Mm. Well, something I, I want to bring up, but also sometimes these traits are portrayed. Obviously, I'm all for someone learning to not cure their problems, but learning to manage them and, and mm, keep yes. them under control. But sometimes the film portrays them as like a disease that needs to be cured through a series of embarrassing scenarios. Through a montage. Yeah, I'm on, we're going to yeah. need a montage. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, we're going to yeah, we're going to need a montage or a se- or even just a series of embarrassing scenarios, and then all of a sudden they're cured. Yeah, they're no longer. It, it presents you a couple of correcting scenarios where the least favorable outcome happens because the person has this deficiency. Yeah, when that's not entirely the case. Well, yeah, and and I mean a good example of this. Well, I mean. I think a film that did it quite all right, actually, was The King's Speech, in that at the end, he doesn't actually cure his stutter. He doesn't actually fully get rid of it, but he's learned to keep it under control when he's doing a speech on the radio. Hmm. So, like, he does a relatively fluent speech, but he still has a stutter, and he probably always will. But he's learning to keep it under control, whereas I think a lot of films present it as an embarrassing deficiency of the person that needs to be cured. Yes, it needs to be eradicated rather than managed, which is not the correct response, I think, because as soon as you state that something about you is utterly deficient and needs to be inherently fixed, there needs to come with it sort of just like this admission that you are flawed and this might not work. Yeah. Mm. Which, you know, if... Again, this goes goes back to Cartman, who's basically the clinical diagnosis of narcissism. Mm. Um... He doesn't think anything's wrong with him, and all problems about him need to be eradicated immediately, mm. including, mm. you know, other people. Mm. <laughs> well, and I was also thinking a character from a show called Coupling called Jeff Murdoch. And, well, basically, Jeff Murdoch, he seems to have a terminal problem in which he can't talk to women without saying something embarrassing and random. Like, for example, in one episode when he's trying to chat up a woman who he's, he's fallen in love with her leg, of all things, he accidentally says he has a wooden leg himself. And this actually gets her attention. And when he's talking to other women, he accidentally says things like gusset or even just says breasts out loud. And But, of course, the show never goes out of its way to cure him, though. The show encourages you to laugh at this. Well, I mean, I love the show, but it encourages you to laugh at this. But he never overcomes this. Yeah. No, instead, he gets a girlfriend who suffers from a similar issue when yeah. talking to men. Mm. Well, yeah, mm. there's going to be a new movie that comes out into the Ghostbusters series. And, you know, Dan Aykroyd is a very, very public person with Asperger's. Mm. And, you know, the entire movie is just an Asperger's just like... I could tell that the person who wrote the story was just like, yes, you know, very technical knowledge, interplay mm. of character, of what's called of certain characters. Like, you could get all the characters and slam them together and make a fully functioning person. Or you could leave 
them as four separate people and let them play off each other, which works. Hmm. Yeah. Which, you know, everybody's inherent weaknesses is covered by somebody else. And weaknesses exist as solutions to problems. Yes. For example, don't cross the beams. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. Yeah. I think I might wrap this up, actually, with a quote from Albus Dumbledore from Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. I hope I've got this right. It is not our abilities that tell us who we truly are. It is our choices. Mm. Mm. But the choices we make. He doesn't say that, but yeah, that's right. So screenwriters, take note of that, please. Choices. Mm. You know, I understand show, don't tell, but choices, not appearances, or not solely appearances Mm. and abilities. What you you do with those abilities. You can show that without telling it. Yeah, of course, yeah. Yes. If you want to show that they're a good person, show them doing something good. That they're a bad person, show them doing something bad. Oh, wow. Mm. This is so simple, but I feel like I've just arrived in something that, like, no one has really realized before. They're like, what? But we can't do that. Like, we have to dress them in black if they're bad. (laughs) And (laughs) Oh, yeah, some movies actually actively subvert Mm. that. Mm. True. Anyway, yes. Thank you for joining Cal, Daniel, and myself talking about movie stereotypes. Uh, we've got one more conversation coming up before the end of the episode, and that will be espionage. espionage. Enjoy. Espionage. Hello and welcome. Today we're going to be talking about <laughs> spying and espionage. Christian, I believe that you had an, uh, you pulled up an article on um, the fact that the Scotland Yard has has over 200 neurodiverse people on their payroll. Yes, um, indeed. Look, I must admit this is not exactly news. This is an article from two years ago, but it was at least news to me when I was doing a bit of researching. So, yes, it says here some 120 neurodiverse staff are employed by the British Intelligence Agency. And, uh, of course, what's noteworthy, this is the article from The Telegraph, is that by neurodiverse, they don't just mean autistic. It actually covers specifically, I think, more dyslexia and dyspraxia as well, in fact, in terms of the analytical skills related to those. So dyspraxia, of course, you know, makes me happy because I have it. So just see that, no, I might be a spy one day if I choose to be so. It's quite inspiring. <laughs> uh, I don't think... I don't. Uh, a nice don't, pun there. Being a spy is inspiring. Yes. Oh, thanks. Yes. yes. I saw it and Dan saw it. You didn't even intentionally do that. That's the thing that's pissing me off. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so dyslexia and also dyslexia. So sometimes quoted about that, the whole... Uh, like, even though dyslexia, you know, literally meaning, like... Disorder of lex word part of the brain, language processing, reading and writing specifically, manipulation of like 3D objects. So, visuals kind of spatial thinking is actually very advanced. So, yeah. Well, it has to be. Hmm. When the human mind is, when it has a deficiency, it has to usually overcompensate in some one way or another. Hmm. Um, yeah, exactly. And then the other Which also, is why, you yeah. know, blind people have an intense sense of hearing they rely upon it more. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Not like super hearing, but there is some degree of compensation, obviously. And with dyslexia, there's also this other opinion that we shouldn't even necessarily see there's like a deficiency. That's just kind of how it presents in like society. I guess part of it is also realizing that like ability to read and write is not like taken for granted thing that all human beings will be able to be able to do easily. Well, of course, people are going to be good and bad at certain things. Mm. 
we only saw it as sort of like a deficiency when we stated that everybody has to be literate. It's an amicable goal to have your entire society to be uh, illiterate. Not, oh, sorry, not illiterate. Literate. <laughs> yes. Um, illiterate is, means completely the opposite. And mm. I was trying to explain this to uh, what's called one of my good friends of mine who basically said that the entirety of the educational system is bigoted towards people who don't learn that way. I'm like, no, you have to have some sort of arbitrary standard that you need to apply to because we've run every test we can and we say if we have this minimum level of education within society, society basically, it suppresses poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for us inside the Western world, it's year 10 education. That's the thing. It's like, it's very tough explaining it to somebody who didn't want... It was very tough explaining it to her, but I think she got it in the end. Um, mm. But still, going back to Scotland Yard, maybe I can become a... No, I can't become a spy. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't I'm, be any good at that either. Yeah, I'm too honest. Although, mind you, maybe I could play off that. I'm like, yes, I am a spy. And maybe they don't, they don't believe me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, that's true. Obviously, they're going to be quite murky with the details because they're not going to specifically tell us, you know, oh, so, so what exactly you, like, is this some project? Like, what exactly are you getting these people to do? Um, oh, well, you know, we had such and such who was, like, working on tracking down this person and using yeah. these methods over here and this and part of the world. And we have an person inside our ID department who are yeah. showing up our cyber defenses here, <laughs> yeah. here, and here. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then it kind of sounds like, if you're putting it like that, it kind of sounds like hiring neurodiverse people to fill a quota. Yeah, true. No, I don't think that's even... Like, that's just kind of happened instantly. No, no, yeah. no. And this is merely my assumption that Scotland Yard would behave like a military organisation. It is allowed to discriminate because if you don't have a leg, you can't fight. Mm. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, allowed to discriminate in some mm. respects. I don't know about, like, oh, mm. if you're gay, you can't fight. But, yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> obviously, if you're mm. gay, you can still fight. If you don't have a leg, you well, can't. Some, you know, well, some... Oh, no, that's not necessarily <laughs> true. <laughs> Anyway, yeah. It does impede you, though, in that sense. Yes. Yeah. Maybe getting back to, you know, rather than pushing my own gay agenda. No. Um, <laughs> like, well, yeah, no, of course, that's intersectionality, very important. But, yes, bringing it back to case of neurodiversity, I know with the military you've had quite a few frustrations over that, mm. Cal. Yes, um, I have. Absolutely. Mm. But, you know, as I said, I see their point. They are allowed to discriminate, and they're choosing not to inside this particular field because, you know, they might see, oh, like, autistic people are really good at computers because, you know, they have a faint interest inside them since about the age of four, which yeah. is very stereotypical. But, you know, stereotypes do have a grain of truth. It depends on how many grains there are inside yeah. that particular Well, generally, aspect. a stereotype comes to exist for a reason. Yes. Hmm. Um, yeah. It depends on whether it's an aberration of the truth or yeah. the actual truth. And at least for me, I'm very interested inside technology and I could see you know Scotland Yard going yes we want a bunch of autistic people because they will focus on what is important Mm. Um, yes they are the mm. who's credit as so there is a dyslexic and dyspraxic support community specifically at the GCHQ but yes they use the words dispassionate logical and analytical way to combat foreign Mm. threats yeah all very commonly associated, well, certainly with autism, but I'm sure with other neurodiverse conditions as well, especially the, the analytical side. Obviously, that's very broad. So um, mm. that is the other argument as to, like, what dyslexia actually is. It's that it's pretty simplistic just to say it means you can't read. Like, that's the effect, but that's not really, like, yeah. what it is. Yeah. Or dysgraphia means you can't write. 
It's a simplified version, just to put it very succinctly, if you have limited time to explain. Oh, yeah. But it depends on who you're having to communicate it to. Yes. Mm. My concern about this would be, I mean, hiring Aspies because Aspies typically are good with computers, even though that is a stereotype. That has some truth to it. My concern about is almost like using beagles as sniffer dogs because beagles have a heightened sense of smell. It's like, are people going to see that as treating neurodiverse people almost as animals? Are people going to interpret it that way? Well, humans are animals. We are oh, yes. part of the animal kingdom. Oh, yes, we're part of the animal kingdom. But your concern is them treating them less than human. Yeah. Mm. But, I mean, I'm no, my concern is would people see it that way? I don't necessarily see it that way, but will people see it that way? Gosh, I hope not. But, yeah, possibly they might start to see them a bit machine-like. And, yeah, it's, it's mm. also... I mean, I know people's argument for neurodiversity and acceptance of the neurodiverse community is sometimes, oh, you know, we need neurodiversity, but, you know, basically saying, oh, you know, be nice to us, you need us. But what if those of us who aren't particularly like, well, like, you know, of course everyone has a, you know, everyone has something to offer, but um, mm. what if some people are replaceable in a certain extent? Like, oh, okay, well, I don't necessarily need you to do this for me. I can get somebody else to do this for well, me. Well, think of the nature <laughs> yeah. of the job. I think everybody mm. realizes that they're mm. replaceable at that yeah. joint. Oh, absolutely. Or at least at least if they're irreplaceable, mm. at least in the, the most harsh terms, they would need to make themselves replaceable because, you know, if, yeah, take out the only cyber warfare division hmm. guy who's running the op then you need somebody else again the chain of command works that if a general gets lopped off his lieutenant takes his place the entire structure is designed to replace itself yeah, from yeah. the bottom upwards <laughs> and I'm guessing it would be the same here again I'm not part of the espionage community so I don't know <laughs> But yeah, I, I guess I was thinking more like as a way of to prove to people that, you know, oh, we don't need curing why because we're useful. I have heard, you know, someone say to me to that, well, you know, we still have people who think differently. We don't need autism. It's like, actually, yeah, that's probably not enough. How about, okay, don't cure us because maybe, you know, it's the right thing to do mm. um, well, rather than, yeah. Well, well, yeah, there is a sort of like a moralistic argument. But yeah. it's also the fact that, like, there is this argument that, a moralistic argument that, you know, autistic people need to prove why they need to exist. Yeah. And then for me, it's just like, no, I've met neurotypical people. They feel exactly the same way. Like they need to justify their existence. Oh, absolutely. It's kind of um, universal. Yeah, I can, I can understand why you might think that external pressures might demand, but otherwise, an unfair level of proof. But at least inside this organization and several other government departments, where it is required for you to have an extremely high competence in what you're doing. Because if you screw up, the entire world might end. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Having these, these sorts of people inside those sorts of roles um, it might be a boon to that sort of particular... Mm. Um, the particular jobs that they might be doing. Yeah, mm. of course. If you were tiptoeing around that, you didn't need to. Like, yes, definitely yes. agree with that. No, I couldn't squeeze the words out. I was being... <laughs> As you say, a bit dyslexic. <laughs> Tiny finger. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we got Manuel Callan laugh in there at least. For yeah, his last episode. <laughs> I did the, the Dr. Evil thing, just a little bit dyslexic. <laughs> oh, yeah, yes. <laughs> Perfect gesture for podcasting. Yeah. Uh, so I think we might wrap up um, our spy discussion there. But yes, thank you. Hopefully you did find that um, inspiring. Yes. Yes. 
Yes, inspiring. God damn it. <laughs> and uh, I, hope I, my, I, hope my, I hope my talking about ambition overload has helped people who might be suffering from it in secret. Yes, yes, definitely. And I think indeed that does actually bring us to the end of the episode. Yep. So, yes, yes to yeah. Callan's last episode. Yeah, so, we're going to um, miss you, Callan. It's, yeah. yeah, you've been a big help on this show. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Well, I do it because it's right. <laughs> moralistic argument. Um, yeah, the yeah. moralistic <laughs> argument. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but still, you've been with Cal. For the last time, Christian, Cal. And Dan. Yeah. Yep. Um, and Daniel. You can like us on Facebook. We're one of the first things that will come up, so, you know, like us on Facebook. Yeah. We have a Twitter. We have WordPress. We have an email on, on our Facebook page if you want it. And I think on our Twitter that you can send your uh, written submissions into if you're that way inclined. Yes. Um, if you swing that way, yes. yes. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess we'll see you next fortnight then. Well, mm-hmm. Dan and I might. Yeah. Cal- oh, yes, thanks for reminding me. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Just trying to elate the people. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. The podcast will still be here, yeah. I won't. <laughs> Yes, but you've done a lot for the show, so people can, even if though you'll be gone, you're still part of the show in recording. Indeed, indeed.